0: This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode of Ready or Not is brought to you by The Tenth Co, creators of science-backed supplements for mothers by a mother.
1: intrusive thoughts about harming Benji. I was never going to do it, but just having a thought about that scared the shit out of me. Not only was I the primary carer, but I was doing the majority of housework at home. When you don't know what it is, you can't articulate it. Hugh and Josh both Excellent, excellent partners, excellent dads. I see it all the time, but interesting that they both had this reaction. There's so much expectations on women to carry all this and then be really graceful about it. There's nothing wrong with you if you are feeling quite resentful or enraged.
0: When Penny Moody appeared on her husband, Hugh van Kylenberg's podcast to talk about the mental load of parenting, the response was huge. Penny shared an experience that so many mothers can relate to, and that was the rage and the frustration that comes with feeling like everything at home is falling on you. On the other side of the coin, Hugh, the founder of the Resilience Project, shared an experience that many dads would relate to, feeling like he was doing everything that he could and that it still wasn't enough. That is, until he started to realise just how much his wife was taking on. Penny is more than just Hugh's wife and a regular guest on his podcast, though. She's a published author, an OCD advocate, a mother of three, and a social work student. Here, we talk about going through those fair play cards and making the invisible load at home more visible, her experience with OCD and how that's shown up in motherhood, and how she went about writing her newly released book, The Joy Thief. I'm Lucinda This is Ready or Not, and here is the candid and kind Penny Moody. Penny, a lot of people know you as a regular guest on The Imperfects and also as the author of the newly released The Joy Thief. But what came before all of this for you career-wise?
1: Before I started writing, um, and actually before I had kids, I worked mainly in communications. I originally wanted to be a journalist. That's what I wanted to do forever. But I went to uni and I just, I don't know, I totally lost confidence in my abilities. And also at the time, everyone was like, the uni professors were like, this is a dying, this is a dying industry, PR. PR is where it's at, communications, PR. And that's kind of where I found myself, um, sort of drifting around different jobs, working on communication strategies, social media strategies, but never really finding something I really loved or felt really good at. When I had kids, it kind of shifted a little bit. And then I guess getting the opportunity to write a book was kind of going back to what I originally really wanted to do, which was to write.
0: So speaking of kids, when did the idea of starting a family enter your thoughts? And was it one of those things that you jostled with in terms of where you were at with your career or did it feel quite natural for you?
1: That's such a good question. Hugh and I were together, me and my husband were together for only maybe a year before we got pregnant. And he was a little bit older and very ready to have kids. And it was something I knew I wanted to do, but I was like, oh, there are still quite a lot of things I want to do. But I was at this kind of dead end career-wise, I think. I was working for this PR company with some really great people, but just not what I wanted to do. It was really corporate clients and it just wasn't my thing um, and I felt really stuck and I write about this in the book a little bit but I kind of was like okay maybe maybe getting pregnant will give me a bit of a break and I can kind of reevaluate things I mean ridiculous looking back now to be like yeah you know having a kid will give you will, will give you a break like little did I know that's when the work was really about to kick off but it did shift things for me career-wise actually
0: that's really good to hear because I think a lot of us think of it as this final destination and then afterwards our careers just never the same. Totally. For you it obviously led to some pivots and maybe some realigning. Is that was that the case do you think?
1: Yeah, yep, yeah, exactly. So when I was meant to go back, well I did go back to work for this PR company um when my eldest Benji was about 9 months. And I I wasn't ready looking back. I just know I wasn't, I wasn't ready to go back. I was, you know, he was still not sleeping. Um, My mental health was terrible at this point, but I was like, well, that's when I told them I'd go back. So I should do it. And I did. And (laughs) I lasted, I kid you not two days. I had two days back at the office and look, I was in a very fortunate position where I could actually I think I was just in tears the second day and thinking like, Mm. you know, I was still breastfeeding. I was, like I said, not in a good space. And I had this email from a client which was just really, really rude and abrupt. And I was just like, I can't, I can't actually do this. If I'm going to be driving and it was at the time driving an hour into the office, bringing the pump, really going to great lengths. I want to be doing something that I really care about And I had long chats with Hugh at this time and we just both decided it wasn't a good fit and it just, yeah, was no longer right for me. And like I said, very privileged position to be able to be like, no, I'm going to have a few months where I think about this. And that took a great weight off my chest, I think. And after that, I actually, because Hugh, my husband started a company called The Resilience Project and at the time they didn't have anyone working in the communications part of things. Like that just wasn't a thing they do. It was all word of mouth. Amazingly. I mean, they had a website, but what I, what I did was stepped into that kind of role and we worked together for a couple of years.
0: Oh, wow. So what was that like working with not only your partner, but now also the father of your child?
1: It was really, it was actually really great for a while. It was, you know, there was a team of probably about five or six, there at the time. And so we weren't working like, you know, we weren't physically really together much um, because he was never really in the office. He was kind of, he was all over Australia at the time doing talks to different schools and businesses. I was very much in the office with the other people who were just incredible. And so it was actually really fun. I really enjoyed it. And it, it reminded me that I could really enjoy my work and it was very flexible because we could kind of do it how we wanted to do it I was working a couple of days a week I think three days a week at this point and a lot of it I could do from home so it was really great and I think it got to the point after a couple of years where I kind of thought this is I'm really enjoying this but this is very much Hugh's thing this is not my thing I need to find out what my thing is.
0: And you mentioned Hugh traveling which I didn't even think about how did that go I think in motherhood alone obviously if your partner's traveling Mm -hmm. a lot that that adds challenges if you're navigating work on top of that that can be quite a lot what do you think when you reflect back I imagine he was perhaps traveling more than than he is now
1: it was really hard it was really hard having a tiny baby and working yeah working three days a week and he really was traveling all the time It was looking back it was crazy luckily we we have very involved parents, sort of grandparents to our kids. And so they were over all the time. They were looking after Benji when when we were at work. We were so lucky in that way. It wouldn't have been possible for me to work otherwise. But it did put a strain on things. It was really it was really difficult. And, and it was hard for Hugh. Like at some point, because we were living down the Mornington Peninsula at this time and working in the city. And at one point, Hugh was driving from our home to the airport and he just fell asleep at the lights. And um, then we're like, oh, we need to re- reevaluate things a little bit. So yeah, it was it was certainly a bit of a, a crazy time. And looking back, a bit much, I think, for for having such a little a little baby.
0: It's funny; hindsight always seems to add to that as well. <laughs> whereas at the time, you just yep. sort of motor through it, and people wonder how you did it, and you're like, we just yep. did it. You but did aside it, yeah. from that, what was new motherhood like for you? I know you mentioned that you or your mental health was struggling at the time. How did you find the first year of parenting?
1: Oh, gosh, it was such a mixture of joy and just exhaustion, I think. It, it's really, it's, it was really a blur. We we, I mean, Benji, our eldest, really, oh, like so many babies, just didn't sleep, like just was waking up so many times a night for so long. <laughs>
0: And it's, it's oh. really wild what that does to you, isn't it? Like you you know sleep's important and you can sympathise to an extent if you haven't had kids. But, oh. oh, your child not sleeping is really hard.
1: It really is. Uh, you know, there was one night I just felt I was going insane. Um, I think I was. And there were some really, look, really beautiful, joyful moments, but for a lot of it, it was really difficult. Um, Also, I mean, in terms of like, my physical self like I had no idea how long it would take to recover from from pregnancy and labor um something that no one really seemed to talk about much I think it maybe it's changed I mean it's definitely changing but it was just a real yeah it's just a real blur I think I think the fact that my mental health wasn't good I wasn't really seeing a psychologist regularly it just was yeah a real battle for a long time for me
0: And so you've been really open with your OCD journey, which I think is really important because a lot of people talk about OCD in the zeitgeist of like, I need to have a clean house and all of that sort of stuff, which isn't obviously OCD. Can you share what you're comfortable with about that experience and also how that's showed up in motherhood for you, if at all?
1: Certainly showed up a lot. I, at the time... I didn't know I had OCD. I would just was diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and I'd been on medication for about 10 years.
0: Oh, wow. Um
1: yeah, but I and I was sort of seeing a psychologist every now and then, but it really I hadn't been diagnosed. Um I had a an inkling that it was OCD. But when I got pregnant, it, my symptoms kind of went away for most of the time I was pregnant, which was, which was quite bizarre. I mean, I've heard, I've heard other people say similar things, but for others, I know it can completely go the opposite way.
0: Were you scared that it might go the opposite way? Or was um, it something that didn't really enter your thoughts at the it time? It didn't
1: really, no, it didn't really enter my thoughts much. I, I did have long conversations with a GP about whether I could stay on medication and I did. And I'm so thankful that I did. But no, I had, I didn't really think about it too much. And then it kind of went away and I thought, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe it's finished. <laughs> maybe that's, that's it for me and mental illness, which is quite naive. But I then had Benji and it came back with a vengeance, obviously with the sleeplessness and just the stress of new parenthood. It came back and the, you know, with, with OCD, it's the presence of intrusive thoughts or images or urges which are then usually followed by um, compulsions so repetitive behaviors that are used to try to dampen the anxiety I guess and I started getting you know really awful intrusive thoughts about harming Benji about what I'm you know I was never going to do it but just having a thought about that scared the shit out of me and then I thought oh, what if I, what if I actually do this? And then I, you know, he would be playing it over and over in my head. And this is so common, like even for people who have never had OCD before, perinatal OCD. So, which can come on, you know, when, you, when you're pregnant or, or after birth is really, really common, like scarily common. Um,
0: I've definitely had thoughts. I frame it more for me as fearing bad situations, yeah. but I feel like I can semi understand what you mean. I can't quite get my head around that feeling because it's not my lived experience Mm. but I would definitely have these moments of being like what if I accidentally shut the car bonnet on his head like wild things that I never thought about before.
1: Yeah and this is just your imagination this is just so such a normal thing that everyone's brain does especially when you've got a little person to look after it's like a very natural thing your brain will do to be like scanning Um, dangers and scanning possibilities and you know which must be
0: instinctual mustn't it like it maybe goes back to those cave days
1: I'm sure it does Um, and so it's not the intrusive thoughts aren't unique to people with OCD that's just like whatever that's just a human experience but the thing is having this really what one psychologist termed as catastrophic misinterpretation of the thought being like, if I've had the thought, it must mean something about me. It must mean oh, something bad about that's me. Really
0: interesting.
1: And it must mean that I, I, am capable of doing this. It was, yeah, it was around the time when Benji was about nine months, I think, where I just had a bit of a breakdown, and I knew I had to get proper help. I, I think, like I said, at this stage, I had an inkling it was OCD, um, and so I, I thought I have to find someone with you know experience in treating OCD, and this was pre-COVID. So it was still hard to find someone, but I did find someone that I could see in about six months time. And even just having that, knowing that I was going to see someone soon really sort of made me feel a lot better. And, and once I got proper treatment, it, you know, everything
0: changed for me really. And so you're going to have two more children. What experiences are similar and what experiences are different when you grow a family in terms of motherhood, balancing career, just balancing life?
1: Yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard balance. I think for me, luckily being able to manage my mental health before I had my second and third children was really, really important. And I was really lucky. I could not totally get on top of it, but get to a point where, like I said, I could manage it. The thing was, I I had my second child, Elsie, about six weeks before Melbourne's first lockdown so that was a really wild year. Um, and again, another child who didn't sleep. So that was, you know, there were lots of challenges in that as well. Like I felt.
0: And no childcare for your eldest.
1: No, no. He, they were both, I was looking after, yeah, a tiny little baby and a three-year-old and he was still able to work, uh, which was great for him. Um, (laughs) But I was not. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Um, and he was still home more than he he would have been but you know i was i was going crazy like so many other primary carers out there during that time and when they shut the playgrounds it was like went oh. to a whole new level yeah it was that's a really tough time and i think like so many others and look we were lucky like we didn't we didn't lose anyone we loved we were still able to you know financially we were fine but just i feel like it's all blurred into a really kind of yucky time like that's just how i remember it mm-hmm. just Just a hard time. Luckily, I was able to get onto the sleep training quite early with with Elsie because I just never really did that with Benji. And in between lockdowns, I was able to go to a sleep school and that made a huge difference. Um, So I feel like with all the sleep stuff, I was a little bit more, more proactive the second time around just because I knew I didn't want it to get to the point it did with Benji. In terms of trying to balance a career, you know, a career at that time it just wasn't possible. I'd by this stage I'd actually gone back to study, so I decided I really wanted to study social work. Um, this was just before I had Elsie, but then yeah, lockdown happened. I had to put that off kind of indefinitely, and I think this is when things started to kind of get to me in terms of the mental load and feeling a little bit resentful of Mm. Hugh and the fact that he could keep going as he always would. But not only was I primary carer of two kids, which I hadn't really signed up for, like that's not what we had decided originally before we had kids. Not only was I the primary carer, but I was doing the majority of housework at home.
0: I feel like second pregnancy really exacerbated the difference in roles between my husband and I. He could be as even a parent as he could in those hours that he is literally at home and not on site at work. But being pregnant for the second time really really honed in on the fact that he can't carry a pregnancy, he can't give birth, he can't breastfeed. If you added COVID to that, I can't imagine how it would have exacerbated (laughs) things. I was going to get to your book next, but I'll leave that to the end now that we're on it. Let's talk about that episode that I think got slid into my DMs probably 10 times from 10 different people. And it was on the Imperfects. And I think anyone that has come to this episode will have listened to that already. For anyone that isn't familiar, can you first tell us about the whole Fair Play movement?
1: I can't remember how I came across Fair Play, but I I somehow heard about this book and I bought it and it was written by a woman called Eve Rodsky. She's an American, I think she was a lawyer. She was really feeling it in the corporate world. And had a child and at some point I think she just kind of exploded because she was just full of rage and resentment about kind of all the stuff that she that sort of came on top of parenting so the fact that she was pretty much doing everything to run a household and none of it was paid and none of it was really even recognized and so she kind of went about mining other people's experiences and realizing that this was so common amongst women or or primary carers of kids. And then she, because she, she was a, a lawyer, she was so used to writing down all her hours of work and all the things that she would do. So she started to do that for all the housework and all the stuff to, you know, that she was doing at home. And she came, she sort of developed this strategy, I guess, to make all this housework and all this domestic labor more visible in an attempt to then make it more equal amongst partners. The book explains all this. And then she's also developed these cards, which are sort of categories for for all the things that are needed to run a household. And the idea is that you split up the cards as evenly as possible between you and your partner so that you're both carrying that load, sharing that load, which can be so heavy.
0: So heavy. And I think a lot of the time you don't even realise until you're in it and then you're doing it and then you return to work, to paid work, and you go, wow, I'm doing a lot here. How did you actually approach that with you? I think not well. (laughs)
1: I don't think I did it with much grace. Um, I think I just exploded a few times, like Eve Rodsky talks about in her book. I think when everything was getting on top of me, I well, I bought the book and I actually remember reading it at night time and like I would read it aloud to Hugh to so say he'd really get the picture, and he'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, that's you know, yep, yeah, that's really interesting, great." And then I'd be like, "Cool, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy the cards." And like we talked about in the Imperfects episode, he he kept seeing it as a personal attack on him when I when I would say, I really want to do these cards, I feel overwhelmed and I want to make this more even. He would see it as me saying, You're you're not doing enough. Which I think um, is just
0: such a common sentiment because yeah. my husband, as I told you before, who does a lot. If I ever am reaching that overwhelm stage, that's mm. definitely, he gets defensive. He thinks I'm literally mm. just attacking him.
1: Yes. Yeah. And what we tried to explain on this episode was that it's really not a personal attack. Like this is, this is, this is so structural. This is, this is the patriarchy. This how it, how, this is how it works. It makes women's, well, it's not women's work, but it makes this work that women often do invisible. So... There was always a um, a purpose to that. And that's to make sure that women keep doing it and do it, you know, without complaint. Because when you don't know what it is, you can't articulate it. Like before yes. I, I actually heard the term mental load, I was just walking around with resentment being like, I don't know why I feel resentful. I, I've got a great partner who who is a great dad who helps out a lot and who will always ask if I need help. But it, it, you know, once I was able to, to kind of articulate it and realize, okay, no, this isn't actually, this isn't my job. This needs to be divided up more fairly. That's when things started to change. But look, I don't think I approached it very tactfully.
0: Well, it's very easy for us women to be cast aside as crazy, angry, hysterical, Mm -hmm. hormonal women, isn't it? Whereas when you actually have these cards in front of you and you can physically lay it out, it actually gives something tangible to what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It really does. And after a while, we started seeing a relationship counsellor and that's something we've been really open about. And it's something that I think has got a little bit of shame attached to it sometimes or people thinking, well, you're only going to see... A marriage counselor or a relationship counselor when things are really bad, but I don't think that's the case at all. I think the more invested you are in your relationship um you know the the better um and again, it's really hard for some people to be able to see a relationship counselor. it's not it's not cheap, and I don't think any of it's covered or subsidized at all, but that was a really, really good thing for us, and you know that's when I kept bringing up the fact that I wanted to do these cards. And Hugh got the message and we, I can't remember, it might've been our relationship counsellor who, who suggested, look, going, going out for dinner, doing it when you're both really calm and you've both got time away from the kids and then really trying to get stuck into it. And that's what we did.
0: And outside of the home too might be a good thing when you're talking about things that happen in the home. After becoming a mother, I distinctly remember when that sense of exhaustion sunk in. I remember it catching me by surprise, and I quickly realised that I'd been running on adrenaline for months and months after my son's birth. Postnatal depletion affects over 50% of mothers, and the effects can last for up to 10 years after giving birth. What many new mothers like me don't know is that if they don't replete and recover from the early phase of motherhood, they will feel the effects for years to come, with even their menopause being impacted. That's why the work of The Tenth Co, created by mother Frida Olgars in collaboration with Dr. Oscar Serralach, is so important. Just because extreme fatigue and all that comes with it is common in motherhood, it doesn't mean it's normal and their top-rated product Flow State works to relieve fatigue, support energy production, calm the mind and support healthy mood balance, hair, skin and nails. Listeners of Ready or Not will receive $15 off their hero product Flow State using code Not at thetenthco.com. So what actually happens when you go through these cards?
1: What Look, I would highly recommend people reading the book before you do it, or at least reading a bit about it. There's a great website about, I think it's called Fair Play Life, which kind of explains the whole system. Basically what we did was we had the deck of cards. We discarded the cards that weren't relevant to us or our life. And then we literally just went through one by one over pizza and pasta and being like, okay, weekday dinners who's got this and discussing it. And then one of us would get it. And the really important thing with this is that it's planning and then executing whatever job that is. So it's not just swooping in at the last minute and being like, okay, I'll make the dinner that night. It's would also be the planning of it. So it'd be like maybe on the Sunday being like, okay, what are we going to have for for dinner um, on the weekdays? So once you've got a card, that's absolutely your responsibility to plan and
0: execute.
1: Which is the um, big thing,
0: right? It's the thinking yeah. of the doing of the things. Yeah. I think our generation of partners have got really good at doing the things, but it's mm. the next level is the thinking of the doing of the things.
1: That's so true. Yeah, exactly. It's not just saying, hey, can I can I help you? It's being organised enough to, yeah, to, to carry it out from from go to woe. So we divvied the cards up and then st- Yeah, started, I guess.
0: How was that first initial period? I imagine there was a bit of a probationary period where you were both figuring (laughs) things out and how you'd divide it all.
1: I think it's still in that period, to be honest. What I would highly recommend people do is do that first divvying up of the cards and then coming back to it a week or two later, it doesn't have to to be going out for dinner. You can just be like, right, one night, we're just going to have a 10 minute chat about this to see how we're going. Do we have to maybe swap some cards or do we have to have a chat about what's working and what's not working? We didn't really do that. So we're kind of like, you know, we kind of got going with it and it was really good. Like it was so, you know, I could tell that Hugh also really liked knowing what he needed to do and did it really well, but it's, it takes such a long time to change. It really does. When you're so used to doing things a certain way. And for example, like he had one of his cards was kids extracurricular activities. He was taking our daughter to ballet, but then every time there was some sort of communication with the ballet class, they'd get onto me
0: because oh, yes. um, they had
1: my email. And so I would, I would write to them saying, just get onto my husband, Hugh. He, I'm not, I'm, I'm working these days. I'm not. I'm not involved in this anymore. And they just wouldn't do it. And it was the same with like the doctor. I remember Hugh had booked um, our youngest in for injections, and then he—he'll hate me saying this, but he forgot. And they called me. And they were like, oh, where's Patrick? He's he needs to have an injection. I said, I actually have no idea. And they're like, well, he needs to be in here at this time. And I said, well, you can call my husband. And they were like, no, no, but we just need to, it's just quicker if you can just tell us what's going on. So like a lot of these things are hard to shift,
0: you know, they really are. Daycare, I've heard that's a really hard one to shift.
1: Yeah. And I definitely
0: I put I did the enrollments because I was on maternity leave and I just did it. And we got the re-enrollment for 2024. Even though I gave it to my husband to fill out and take to daycare, I printed it out. So it just goes (laughs) to show all those little things that happen along the way.
1: Absolutely. And it's, it's really hard to change that. It really takes a lot of persistence from both of you and a real desire on the partner's side of things for them to really want it to change as well. And for that to be the case, they've got to really... Deeply understand why you want to do this. How much better things can be in the relationship if things are more equal for both of you.
0: Did it empower Hugh? Do you think? Would that be a word that you use?
1: Yeah, empowering is a good word. It definitely did, and he was like, "I've got these jobs. These are my jobs, and I'm going to do them as best I can." And he really did, and he does. But again, things kind of get lost a bit along the way and sometimes you find we we found ourselves going back to to what things were before because that just feels easier for everyone maybe um or more familiar and that's why i think it's really important to keep checking back in that's why it was actually quite good to do the episode because we were able to go back over the cards it's a real work in progress and i kind of feel like it might take years
0: well, Which I mean, is, the systems that have been in place that have kept women yeah, doing all these things yeah. have been around for centuries, really, haven't they? So. They have.
1: They really have. So it is It is um, a bit of a battle, but I, I, I feel very lucky. I've got a partner who is very willing to make these changes. And I think that's because he, he, he deeply understands the, the need for it.
0: I think we can often beat ourselves up because... We do as what you said earlier, that maybe you didn't approach this with the grace that you would have liked. But it's because we do reach boiling point and it's because we don't totally. feel supported. How would you how would you recommend someone approaches their partner about wanting to get their buy-in to do these cards?
1: Oh, it's it's so dependent on that person. If they're someone who you think will put up a defense straight away and be quite against the idea, I would, and I'm not just saying this so people, so the Imperfects get more listens, but I'd perhaps (laughs) share the episode as a, as a way to just as a, as an introduction, because both Hugh and, and Josh, Hugh's brother, who's also on the podcast talk very openly about their initial, their initial reaction and how, how they didn't want to do it. I
0: actually really loved Josh's reflections on, I won't remember this verbatim, but it was sort of like he realized that she was the manager of the house, even though he was doing things, she was the, she was the boss and she could never tap out. Whereas he was one of her workers that could sort of tap out of family life when he needed to.
1: Yeah. He kind of used the analogy of shift work as opposed to maybe running a business.
0: Yes, Um, Nothing
1: against shift work, very, very hard, very tiring, but like he said, can kind of tap in and tap out. Um, Yeah. That was, that was a really good way of describing it. And Hugh and Josh both, Excellent, excellent partners, excellent dads. I see it all the time. But interesting that they both had this reaction of like, oh, no, I don't don't want to do this. You're saying this, this is saying, you're saying something about me and that's making me feel really uncomfortable. And they sort of talk through that. And then we talk about how we got over that and um, how in the end it was just the best thing for us and also made everything just more organized and more efficient so look, that's that's one way you could do it. I think approaching it when you're both as calm as possible is would be my advice. But again, that can be really difficult because, like you said, we just there's so much expectations on women to carry all this and then you know and then be really graceful about it, which just isn't always the case. But I I think it's more effective if you're both calm and you're both in a mood. Um, where you can sort of be open and talk through things. And even if you can get the book, it can be really useful because you can both get a bit of a deeper understanding about what it's all about.
0: I think starting with the Imperfects episode is actually a really good tip too because I think a lot of men could really resonate with hearing men talk about it rather than just feeling yeah. like their wife is whinging at them again, which is not the case. So I think that's really good advice. So yeah. getting to your book now. I can't wait to hear how you actually went about writing a book with three children. But firstly, tell us about, we've obviously heard a little bit about your challenges with OCD. What led to you actually writing the book?
1: I never imagined I'd write a book about OCD. I'd done an episode on the Imperfects a couple of years ago about OCD and from there had written just a couple of articles in various publications about my experience it was just, I was pregnant with my third child and I, I just happened to get this email from uh, from an editor from a publishing house saying, have you ever considered writing a book about OCD? And I thought it was like a, I don't know, like some sort of prank or like junk mail. I, I remember <laughs> showing it to Hugh to be like, "This can't, how is this real? This this is incredible because I, like I'd said, I, I always loved to write and I was really I guess, kind of really enjoying learning and talking more about OCD and I guess advocating for people with OCD. So it almost seemed too good to be true, but I started writing um, when I was about probably about 12 weeks pregnant with Patrick. And I had a wonderful editor who understood OCD and who understood that there was a need for a book about it. And together, I guess, we worked out what it was going to look like Um, It was going to be like part kind of memoir, so partly kind of weaving my story through, but also very much a how-to guide, how to kind of survive and and manage and thrive with OCD for people suffering it, but also for loved ones of people with OCD. That's kind of how it all came about really. It was, it kind of felt like it fell in my lap. It was, it all seemed too good
0: to be true. Incredible. And we know that the romance of writing a book isn't the reality. I don't know the reality. I've never written a book. (laughs) But you hear about it a lot in podcast interviews that writing a book is really hard work, especially when Mm. it's about something so personal to you and Mm. that probably digs at some of the darkest moments in your life. How did you Mm. find writing the book both emotionally and logistically?
1: I, I need to be very transparent in that we have had a nanny for three days a week during the whole time and I don't think I could have done it without her. So in a very, very lucky position to be able to have her looking after the kids a lot of the time. But at the same time, I had a, you know, I I sort of got half of it done when I was pregnant, but it was a really hard pregnancy. And then two other kids, I was exhausted. And then, you know, once I had Patrick, I had about three or four months where I wasn't doing anything and then got back to it. But I think because I had so little time to do it, I had to use the hours that I had really well. So there were times when I'd feed Patrick, I'd breastfeed him, and then I'd drive into the office where I was writing the book. I'd write for two hours and then Hugh would bring Patrick in and then I'd feed him pretty much at the desk and then Hugh would take him back and then I'd have another two hours or three hours and then we'd do it all again. I'm such a procrastinator generally, but I couldn't procrastinate because I knew I was on a deadline (laughs) and I just had to to use the time I was given, I guess. But but look at the same time I was I was used to being home for the last couple of years with tiny little people. And so actually getting out of the house and having quiet and being able to be creative was
0: May was as well such be a joy. On an island on your own.
1: Yeah. It was like actually felt like a luxury. It was strange. Like it was this really it was really great when I was able to sit there and write. But it wasn't, yeah, it certainly wasn't how you'd expect to writing a book, maybe, you know, in a in a lovely seaside house with um classical music playing and, you know, all the time in the
0: world. The, at the front. <laughs> yeah. yeah, literally what you've been.
1: It was very different to that, but it was it was a shift for me because yeah, I, I and I think I needed that. I needed to be creative and I needed to have something that was just mine and that's what it was.
0: I went to a talk at the Sorrento Writers' Festival in April and it was about how different authors approach writing. Some fly by the seat of their pants and some literally have maps all over their houses about their characters and about the plot and timelines and all of that stuff. Obviously you weren't writing fiction but you're still writing a book How did you go about that? Was there structure? Was there ideas that would come into your head? Or was it quite easy to formulate that structure around part memoir, part how-to guide?
1: It wasn't easy. It was, it took a lot of back and forth and a lot of conversations with my editor and a lot of thinking about it all the time. So even when I wasn't in the office, I was often thinking about how am I going to make this work? Because it was also, there was sort of the memoir part the sort of factual part. And then I also wanted to wanted to include other people's experiences with OCD. So I wanted to interview people with lived experience to give a more nuanced view of what, what OCD really can look like because it can be so different for different people. So trying to weave all that in was really difficult. It took a lot of trial and error. But like I said, because I, I was on a deadline and there was so many other pressures, I was very organised in how it all looked and how the timeline would work with with my pregnancy, with the the labour and then having a tiny baby and how how that would all fit in. So I was much more organised than I usually would be because I had to be. Yeah, it's funny. Like looking back, I I don't remember being really stressed about it, but I'm sure I was. I might have just forgotten. <laughs> I might have forgotten already. I think I was just so lucky to have a really great editor, Tessa from Ellen and Unwin, who was so organised herself and so good at what she does, but didn't put much pressure on me. So there were times where I just couldn't, you know, the the book had to take a backseat and that was fine. I was never, I never felt like, like I had to really push through when I couldn't.
0: And so the book's just been released. Where are you at now with navigating the press of it? Is it, do you have to travel much or is it mostly online?
1: Yeah, no, it's mostly online actually. And I guess that's probably one of the good things that came from COVID. Everyone realizes you can do stuff online. Um, Publicity side of things is organized by the publishing house and it has, you know, look, it has been a little bit of a struggle trying to work out what I can do with the book post-release and what Hugh's doing with the Imperfects and they've got their tour coming up again. And that navigating uh, between schedules it's never easy it it really it never is and you know I think for so long when you're the one at home it's like the default is that I'm at home yeah and he's at work and so sort of trying to work out how we how we make it work is is, is difficult but he's you know he he's condensed all his work into three days um Which is
0: really great. It's hard to believe when I see how much he does.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is. They're big, they're full days. Yeah. They're very full days. I guess he's
0: got Um, a team behind him too now, right? It's not just this small business.
1: He's got a really big, amazing team behind him. And he's had to say no to so many things this year. And that's really hard for him. I know how hard it is. I see it on a daily basis this struggle between wanting to do things and Kind of flowing momentum can be really hard.
0: Yeah, which is something that so many mothers have had to do for so long. So as much as you obviously want him to get everything out of life, it must be nice that he can then understand some of the things that you've had to say no to.
1: So well put. Yes, exactly. That is so true.
0: Yeah, And so my last question, I've loved hearing about all of this. I find it really fascinating what you've done and everything that you did with the fair play cards and how many conversations you've sparked around Australia, both good and bad, I'm sure, but I'm rooting <laughs> for all of them. Um, Hugh is obviously pretty well in the limelight these days. He's, I would say he's a pretty well-known figure in Australia. What does that do in terms of making work work when his job is so public and I guess demand so much from him when he does go on tours?
1: Since bringing up this whole thing about the mental load and and reminding him over and over that when we decided to have kids, he'd be the stay-at-home dad because that was the conversation. I think that's when he, he decided he would slow things down and he would start saying no and he would make room for me to then get back into work, but it really can be very difficult because... He's got a lot of expectations on him because I think everyone expects once things start getting off the ground, once you start becoming in demand, I guess, for for certain things, then that's what you should want and you should want more of that and things just need to get faster and faster and busier and busier. And he's been really good at actually saying, no, I don't want all that. I want these, I'm going to focus on these couple of things and everything else can take a back seat so he's actually been really good at that and he's had to I think at the end of each year well for the last couple of years work out what he's going to focus on and be really brutal about saying no to everything else and Um, do you
0: come into that discussion much as in are you a part of making those calls, because I'm even just thinking as you're saying that as a mum, we probably have those internal conversations without the dad even realising in a mother, father, Mm. family. Is it, does the mum have a say when it's the dad or the primary breadwinner? I'm making an assumption there. Sorry, Mm. I shouldn't make that assumption. Mm. But if he is the primary breadwinner, Mm -mm. does the mother come in to make those conversations about those sacrifices where he should go harder and where he should pull back?
1: I mean, it, it's something he will talk about maybe after the fact, but it's not necessarily, I think he just knows, I think we've had so many conversations about what I expect now and what I want to do now that he knows what he can and can't, like it, what he, what he can and can't like do in terms of. Yeah, in terms yeah. of time-wise what he can and can't do. I think I think it's become a little bit more implicit in that way but um but he does he certainly we we do chat about it but it's not kind of yeah it's not not at the time where he's he's deciding yes or no if that makes sense
0: it's not so much approval versus disapproval it's more bouncing ideas but the communication is already there he knows what time he has and it's his choice how he assigns that in a paid work capacity
1: Definitely. And I think what I've become so much better at, which has taken me a long time is just advocating for myself and being like, no, I'm not, I'm not like this year. I expect to be doing this much work. And this is when I expect you to be looking at, you know, being the primary care of the kids and think that that's not easy to do. And I I know I, I, I totally understand that a lot of people won't, feel like they're in a position where they can um, say that even. So So I feel very lucky I can, I've gotten to the place where I can um, kind of advocate for myself in that way.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky one as well because at the end of the day we can push for feminism and equality all we want, but we do need a certain amount of household income and unfortunately there's a gender pay gap. Yeah. So I feel like the sort of optimist in me is like, no, I need you here then and there. And then the realist in me is like, damn, you earn more money than me at the moment. I can't always do that. So it is tricky when to pull back and when to advocate for yourself.
1: It can be really tricky. And people are in really, you know, especially at the moment with the cost of living crisis and people are, people are having a really hard time of it. And this is probably the last conversation that people feel like they can have. And I I totally understand that. And this is this is where it all, you know, structurally comes into play. And men, of course, will often earn more because they never have to have time out of the workforce, <laughs> you know, and, and so many other reasons as well um, that's simplifying it. But it can be really, really tricky. Um, and I think that's why it can be really good to read books like fair play and you know there are there are other ones out there as well I know Annabelle Crabb's written a good book about this kind of thing but just to just to start putting words around the experience um because that can just in and of itself lift the pressure a little bit when you know it's not just something you're going through it's something that so many people go through um and there's nothing wrong with you if you are feeling quite resentful or enraged
0: Penny, I've absolutely loved hearing from you. It's been really fascinating hearing your experience with fair play, writing a book, and OCD and motherhood, just to name a few. Where can we find your book? And do you want us? Do you want to remind us what it's called again?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's called The Joy Thief. You can find it, I think, at most bookstores and online as well. It's not in an Audible version, but yes, you can find it um, pretty much anywhere online. I
0: think. Awesome. Well, congratulations. No small feat. And thanks for chatting to us today.
1: Thank you so much, Lucinda. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.